When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how left politics can win all over the country with Mike Lux. He's a longtime strategist for the progressive movement and Democratic candidates. Also, we're still thinking about Jonathan Gold, the Los Angeles food writer who died last week. He was the first restaurant critic to win the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, and he won it as a writer for the Alternative Press, the LA Weekly, writing about little mom-and-pop places run by immigrants. Harold Meyerson was an editor in those days at the LA Weekly. We'll speak with him about the significance of Jonathan Gold's work in the age of Trump later in this hour. But first, is Trumpism fascism or what? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. We reached her today in Connecticut. Katha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on the show. Well, lots of our friends on the left have been calling Trump a fascist. The New Republic published a piece headlined, Yes, Trump is a Fascist. Madeleine Albright wrote a book about Trump called Fascism a Warning. On the other hand, we have too many friends who call things fascist just because they they don't like them. Historians, I'm a historian, mean something specific when they talk about fascism. They get a little picky about this. Mussolini and then Hitler ran one-party states that eliminated opposition parties. They had government-controlled media. They banned opposition newspapers and radio. They had government-controlled unions that replaced independent unions. I submit that the United States has nothing like this under Trump. Do you think we should call Trumpism fascism? Well, you know, I always would have said no. Uh, I don't like that word being thrown around because I'm kind of pedantic. And I think that fascism referred to a specific historical uh, development uh, that came out of uh, devastating World War One, drastic economic upheaval compared to what we have now is nothing. The fear of Bolshevism was very big. And I think that, you know, when uh, Naomi Wolf and others said that George W. Bush 
what this was that was fascism and it was going to be just like 1930s germany and i'm thinking oh really did anybody did they believe that bush would simply cancel elections and refuse to leave the white house <laughs> i mean fascism also involves the army you have to control the army yeah. sometimes you have to have your own private army hitler did that mussolini did that so it, to make a long story short i didn't like the use of this word but I, and maybe it isn't the right word for where we seem to be heading. And one reason for that, people forget this. Uh, and I remember it was very shocked when many, many years ago, an Italian friend of mine said, well, you know, Mussolini did some good things for people. <laughs> and I, for years I thought, oh, my God, Vittorio, he's really strange. But, uh, but one of the big things that fascism was always about was big government. Yes. Um, it yeah, big government. It was jobs for the boys. It was building the autobahn, draining the swamps of malaria in near Rome, all that kind of thing. And American conservatism is not at all interested, in, as we've discovered, in infrastructure um, and providing work for people. So that's another big difference. And yet, you know, now I'm thinking, okay, we've got Putin, we've got Donald Trump, we have Modi in Italy, in, in India. Uh, we have all those conservative parties in Western Europe. Uh, we have Egypt. We have a lot of what Viktor Orban of Hungary call illiberal democracies. They have the form of democracy. There are still elections. There are still opposition parties. And yet somehow things just keep going in an autocratic an authoritarian direction. Well, one of the key anti-democratic programs that Trump has pursued, of course, is voter repression. If there's anything that weakens democracy, it's stopping people from voting, especially when they're your opponents. But of course, that's not really Trump's project. That was been the Republican project for a couple of decades now, and Trump was just the kind of unintended beneficiary uh, of that. Who, whoever had been the Republican candidate would have benefited for, from vote suppression. So this part is not really Trumpism. This is, this is the Republican project. Yeah, I don't think they're all that distinguishable in many respects. But I think Trump is special in that one of the features of fascism is, is the cult, the personal cult of the leader. Yes. You always had that. And Putin definitely has that. And Trump has it too. And they both have this strong man personality and they're admired for that. And the rallies where the followers cheer oh. the unique qualities of their leader, that's certain, certain yeah. echoes there oh. are unmistakable. Right, and the, the, the cult of violence, that's another similarity. I mean, Trump is always, you know, at those rallies urging his followers to beat up some poor schmo who happens, you know, who happens to be there and raises, you know, raises a hand in protest. To me, one of the one of the most important things about Trump and Putin and Modi and uh, the guy in Turkey is yeah. targeting the enemy within. This has always been a theme. We must purify yeah. our country of enemies. And those people have different skin color, different religions, different ethnicity. This is a standard feature of fascist movements everywhere, isn't it? Yes, that's a very good point. And so you find Erdogan is, you know, trashing the universities, coming down hard on the Kurds. You find Orban in Hungary, who is one of the prototypical figures that 
of this is uh, very anti-Semitic. In Poland, the Peace and Justice Party uh, is very proud of the pseudo-fact that Poland is one of the most ethnically homogeneous states in the world. That's just because they don't count the Ukrainians who live there. But, uh, you know, and so you're, you're absolutely right. And look at Modi. I mean, look what they're doing with the Muslims now, in yeah. the, the, the Muslims in India. Um, and here in America, sure enough, we've got the whole thing with the immigrants, like, which, is, which they also have in many very, very, you know, liberal welfare state countries in Europe, like, um, like Denmark, where they've become really racist. One more question about what unites fascistic movements around the world. Is there anything about their treatment of women that we should notice? Well, yeah, there is. And, you know, for some reason, this illiberal democracy or fascism or whatever you want to call it always goes along with repression of women. It always goes along with a certain kind of masculinist, you know, male urge to world domination and women have to be put back in the kitchen. Women have to be have to know their place. They are the adornments of warriors. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And sure enough, we see a lot of that. And it's a little late to put women back in the kitchen since most of them are in the in fact in the workforce. But you can still you can still repress them up to a certain point. And I think we see that with the whole drive against against reproductive rights against access to birth control and abortion. So the big question is, does anything connect all these right-wing populist movements around the world? Why is so much of this happening now? Well, in many parts of the world, we're seeing tough economic times. There's a lot of austerity. There's a lot of unemployment. Um, And where there isn't those things, or aren't those things, there's still the fear of them. And you're much more likely to welcome a stranger to your country when you feel he's not going to take anything away from you. Even if he isn't going to take anything away from you, you might fear that he does. So it's austerity and unemployment that provide the the preconditions for the full flowering of these racist uh, uh, kinds of policies. But austerity is not inevitable. Austerity is a conscious policy that's pushed by the World Bank, the IMF, the central governments. And we could have a different policies in, in the world today. We could have, for example, what FDR did with the New Deal, massive government spending on big employment projects, public works and public goods, more and better social services. We did that in the 30s. And I believe in the 30s, the proto-fascist movements in the United States were defeated and democracy flourished. Um, I mean, look, I'm for, I, I, I agree that things would be much better if, if everybody could get together and fight against austerity and against uh, anti-worker policies, um, and I hope they'll do that, and I hope Democratic politicians will fight for that. Well, and let's just remember one more thing in conclusion here. Trump is the most unpopular president in our history He lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. He's not doing much to win the middle and the undecideds. It seems likely, now at least, that we will vote Democrats uh, into control of the House, possibly even the Senate in November, and we'll vote Trump out of office in 2020. Uh, From your mouth to God's ears, 
John, and we may get rid of Trump, but Trumpism, I don't know. Trump has consolidated a block of voters united in their grievances and their fantasies of redress. The fundamentalist stay-home moms, the MAGA hat-wearing toughs, the fox-addicted retirees, the hedge fund multimillionaires, and the gun nuts have found one another. Why would they retreat and go their separate ways just because they lost an election or even two? Around the world, it may be the same story. Democracy is easy to destroy and hard to repair, even if people want to do so. And it's not so clear that enough of them do. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about how to destroy democracy the Trump-Putin way in her latest column, read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. <laughs> Thank you, John. Next up, left politics can win in New York City and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago. But what about Iowa and Ohio? Mike Lux says left politics can win all over the country. He's a longtime strategist for the progressive movement and for Democratic candidates. His career spans four decades and six presidential campaigns. He's worked with the FLCIO, MoveOn.org, Planned Parenthood, the NAACP Voter Fund, and Netroots Nation. And he's written a new book. It's called How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. He's also a contributor to The Nation. Mike Lux, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I, lo- I love The Nation and I love the podcast. Well, thank you. Of course, we're all thrilled about the stunning upset victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for that congressional seat from Queens in the Bronx. She beat the person who was considered to be the likely next Democratic leader of the House. Yeah. And she's going to win in November. She'll then be the youngest woman ever elected to the House. And one more thing, she's a member of Democratic Socialists of America. Tell us for starters, about her campaign, her issues, how she organized it, and her fundraising. Well, I wasn't I wasn't directly involved uh, uh, with Alex's campaign, although I know a lot of the people that were. I tell you, she came she came out of nowhere. Uh, she she literally, as your uh, as your listeners probably know, she literally tended a bar. You know, before she ran for Congress, uh, uh, the, the ultimate uh, grassroots insurgent candidate. Uh, but she uh, she caught fire uh, with people, um, not not just because she's a charismatic person and she is, um, but because she articulated a vision of working class col- politics that that I would argue goes beyond left right. It's more uh, who's got the power and who doesn't, who's inside and who's out. D- to me, it was a classic example of the the, the Democratic Party leadership. I just think they've gotten out of touch with their own grassroots. We, we've become too much of a top-down party in Washington, D.C., uh, and, uh, and we've fallen asleep to what uh, grassroots working-class folks uh, really care about. And she tapped into all of that and scored uh, the upset of the year. Well, what the Democratic establishment has been saying ever since she won was that her kind of politics may work in the Bronx and Queens and, you know, South L.A. and Oakland, but it's not going to work in the middle of the country and it's not going to work in middle-class suburbs. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, senator from Illinois, said uh, we have to be careful not to be, quote, too far to the left, close quote. You, you 
have a piece in the nations arguing that they're wrong about that. Why do you think they're wrong? Uh, Alex's campaign represented the people who cared about working people, the outsiders, the powerless, and uh, that's who responded to her. The same kind of folks uh, are feeling that in Iowa and Omaha and uh, Montana and uh, Ohio. And if you look at the kinds of campaigns that have been uh, successful there against, uh, really against the the trend line uh, in American politics, it's been populist Democrats, working class Democrats. Uh, When you look at Sherrod Brown, he is the only Democrat uh, to have won statewide uh, for an Ohio elective office in the last 10 years. Every other office statewide uh, has been won by Republicans. But Sherrod Brown, uh, six years ago, running against more money uh, from Karl Rove, mostly, uh, and, and his funders, uh, you know, Wall Street and the big, the, all the big businesses, uh, he, he had more money spent against him than anybody else, was vastly outspent by, by super PACs, but he never trailed. Uh, even when he was dark on TV for months at a time with these attacks going on, he never trailed, and he and he won by a bigger margin than Obama won that year. Uh, o- o- Obama squeaked through in Ohio by a little bit, but he won uh, uh, by I think six or seven points. Uh, and right now, this is supposed to be the toughest race, one of the toughest races of the year for Senate Democrats to hold because it was Ohio and Trump had won Ohio by nine points. Sherrod is running way far ahead in the polling, uh, kicking the ass of the Republican who's running against him. Uh, and, and it's because he's want running as a populist working class person who cares about working people. You, and you see that pattern in other states. Tammy Baldwin, who is as progressive a senator as, as there is in the Senate, She's had huge money dumped against her, but she's still doing well in Wisconsin. And you go through state after state in the Midwest, in the West, it's populist Democrats, it's progressive Democrats, it's working class oriented Democrats, outsider oriented Democrats that are running better campaigns than these new Democrats who are hewing more to Wall Street's line. Well, let's get specific about the issues. Are we talking here about Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, free college tuition, uh, a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure program, action on climate change? Are these the issues that work in all these places? Uh, I think for the most part, I think the only the only one of those issues that is, is going to be more controversial in, in some of those places is Medicare for all. Uh, and I think in a lot of places, it's going to be plenty popular. And I think if you frame it right and talk about it right, uh, you can sell it. But I think there might be a little bit of a reaction in some, in some more conservative working class areas to how much is that going to cost us. Uh, and, and I think among, uh, among some seniors, like, we like our Medicare. We don't, we don't want you to do something to ruin the system by adding everybody else in. There, there, there's kind of a defensive reaction from folks who, who already have it uh, and like it. But I think, I think it's an issue that can be talked about, framed, explained in a way that, um, that even, even reluctant folks can go along with it. And I think that there are also you know, alternatives that you can talk about. There's a new proposal out that, 
that Jeff Merkley, who's on the Medicare for All bill, but he's also pushing some different alternatives that he's been pushing, which is the idea of maybe maybe not initially Medicare for All, but but at least Medicare for everyone who wants it and needs it, <laughs> right? So the basic idea is if you if you want to keep your current plan, you'd still be allowed to do so. But anybody who who has a has a bad plan or who doesn't have a plan or is getting screwed by the by the state exchanges can can jump into Medicare. Well, there's one thing I notice about this list, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. This is the Bernie Sanders agenda from 2016, and Bernie Sanders was very controversial. Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary. There's still a lot of antagonism to Bernie Sanders in the party establishment. Do you think the people who opposed Bernie Sanders in 2016 are ready to adopt his program now? I think the party is moving in that direction. You, you know, uh, Bernie Bernie was remarkable in that nobody gave him a prayer to do anywhere near as well as he did. Uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton got more more endorsements, more support from the party establishment than, than literally any non-incumbent had ever gotten. Um, and Bernie still came close to winning because of the power of that message. In, in a different kind of campaign, in a wide-open race, uh, I think a, a candidate uh, with that kind of message uh, would win the primary. Uh, and I think we will see in 2016 more candidates moving in that direction uh, just because they know that's where uh, the energy in the party is. Now, what the opponents of, let's call it the Bernie agenda and the Democratic Party say, is that this is not going to win over the uh, suburban moderates who in the past voted Republican, but now are turned off by Trump and oppose Trump. These people are ready to be recruited to oppose Trump. And having a truly left-wing program is not going to succeed with suburban moderates. What do you think about that argument? Well, I talk about that uh, a lot in my book. I think this the suburban moderate is one of the more overhyped demographic groups in American politics and, and, and has been for a while. If, if you look at, uh, and, and exit polls are flawed, uh, but if you look at the combination of voting patterns, exit polls, pre-election polls, post-election polls, uh, that, that whole mix of numbers, you don't find any evidence that uh, this, these quote-unquote suburban moderates or, or suburban Republicans voted for Hillary in any higher degree, uh, that, that they swung more toward us than, than they, they might have in a normal uh, election year. She got a little bit, uh, a, a little bit more uh, votes from them than, uh, than Obama did against Romney, but it wasn't that much. Uh, at, whereas most of our money, most of our targeting, most of our mail, most of our TV was targeted to those voters. I think the I think the Clinton campaign became over obsessed with those voters because they most of the time at the end of the day they tend to support Republicans. Look, I, if a congressional candidate is running in that kind of seat that's heavy with with uh, higher income suburban moderates, maybe they don't talk so much about about some of those issues. Maybe maybe they run their own campaign in their own way. But I think if you look at the numbers. There's a lot more working-class people than there are higher-income suburbanites. There's a lot more people uh, in uh, in mixed uh, mixed income and mixed race 
suburbs than there are in high-income suburbs. There's a lot more swing voters by any measure of the of the term uh, among working-class folks than there are among higher-income folks. I'll say one final thing: there's a lot of there's a lot of folks uh, in, in those higher-income suburban swing vote categories who are actually actually tend to be with us on uh, a lot of issues. A lot of them love their public schools. A lot of them are appalled by how much money, how much debt their kids have to get into to go to college. A lot of them have no problem with $15 minimum wage because they want people to come out of poverty. Uh, there, a lot of them are with us on immigration. To, to worry about offending a few of them uh, on a few of these economic issues uh, seems to be a, a case of, uh, uh, of over-obsessing over uh, to me. One last question, campaign financing. You know, we're told money talks and, and the candidate who raises the most money almost always wins. Most campaign funding pays for TV ads and consultants. My understanding is those don't really convince people to turn out and vote uh, who are skeptic, skeptical or apathetic or undecided. What convinces people is face-to-face contact with their neighbors who come and talk to them on their doorstep. What do you think about the, the obsession with campaign funding in this cycle and all cycles? I think that we got uh, over-obsessed with TV ads uh, a long time ago and that you could argue back in the 70s and 80s when I was coming into politics uh, that that made more sense than it does now, but I have never thought that it's made, that we should be spending the percentage of our campaign budgets on TV that uh, that are spent. Um, I think that investments in in classic old school person to person, friend to friend, peer to peer, worker to worker, church member to church member, and door to door, and 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 phone to phone. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, and now social media to social media. I think that kind of person-to-person organizing is is extremely important, and it's far more trusted and trustworthy by the people who are receiving those messages than TV ads are. People have grown incredibly cynical about political TV ads. Shocking, right? Uh, <laughs> why would they be cynical about TV ads? They have, they have, but they have, and and, and that's a good thing. So I think we need to trust the people-to-people work a lot more than uh, than TV ads. That's not to say that I'm against ever spending any money on TV ads. Of course you spend some, and of course you spend some on some radio, some cable, some some direct mail, some digital ads. But I, as a as a campaign consultant today, I'm telling candidates spend a lot more of your resources on person-to-person organizing than on TV. Mike Lux. His new book is How to Democrat in the Age of Trump. You can read him at thenation.com. Mike, thank you. It's been great having you on the show. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Anytime you want me back, I'm happy to come. Finally, we're still thinking about Jonathan Gold, the L.A. food writer who died July 21st. He was the first restaurant reviewer to win the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, and he did it while working for the alternative press, the L.A. Weekly. After that, the L.A. Times hired him, 
Anthony Bourdain called him a hero for pioneering the writing about little mom-and-pop noodle shops in strip malls, treating them with the respect and enthusiasm usually reserved for fine dining establishments. Harold Meyerson, executive editor of the American Prospect, was an editor at the LA Weekly when Jonathan Gold wrote there and won his Pulitzer there. I spoke with Harold about Jonathan shortly after he died. Harold, most of the obits uh, praised Jonathan as a restaurant critic because he wrote about low-down ethnic restaurants instead of high-end gourmet places. He wrote about restaurants for working-class people and poor people instead of rich people, places in strip malls, food trucks, especially taco trucks. But there was a lot more to Jonathan Gold than turning away from high-end restaurants. Please, please explain. Well, what, what Jonathan did, and it's, it's really, I think, remarkable, is he began cruising the boulevards in the mid-'80s, but it was at a time when L.A. was becoming the equivalent of what New York was in 1910, the epicenter of a huge wave of immigration. And what Jonathan was doing was doing a couple of things. He, I mean, he was doing many things. I mean, he not only introduced his readers to eateries of all descriptions, as you, as you said, and of all cultures, but he was, so in a sense, he was introducing them to what the food is like in maybe some obscure Chinese province or one of the Stan countries in Central Asia. But he was also, by so doing, uh, introducing readers who lived on the West Side telling them, look, you should really go to the San Gabriel Valley, which for readers on the West Side, you know, was just as much an undiscovered country as the obscure provinces of China. Um, He was a hugely integrative force at a time when, you know, there aren't a hell of a lot of integrative forces in Los Angeles. And if historians are looking back 50 years from now, this great red-blue rift we have in America over a number of issues, but a lot of it is over immigrants and immigration. And if they want to understand why the great cities are so pro-immigrant in, in contradistinction to the Trump constituency, I can't think of a better way they could get a feel for this than reading Jonathan, that, that Jonathan, more than any writer, because of not just the brilliance of his writing, but the breadth of his travelings around town, and which is really kind of a traveling around the world, really sort of brought Los Angeles, I think, to a much greater appreciation of all of the great benefits that come from this kind of diversity, from being a, a, a world city, as Los Angeles is. And Honestly, I can't think of anyone else writing who quite did that. Writers write about what they know, and what they know is usually a fairly confined universe. You know, there's there's Balzac's Paris, there's Saul Bellow's uh, Chicago, there's Dickens' London. But, you know, I mean, the, the, they took particular slices. Uh, Jonathan wrote about what he knew, too, which was a very particular slice. It was the food that was served all around Los Angeles and cooked and what it represented and the cultures it represented and where exactly this thing came from and that, that, that dish came from. So that was his narrow slice. But it happened to be a, you know, a narrow slice that nonetheless ran across the whole world. And in, in that, he, he was writing about more cultures than a Bellow or a Balzac or a Dickens uh, ever, ever could, albeit, forgive me for saying this, in sort of bite-sized chunks. <laughs> So it was it was really a unique contribution. I mean, he was doing this for decades before, you know, Donald Trump was uh, on the horizon at all. But but he was nonetheless 
a kind of living, breathing, eating, digesting, tasting antithesis to, you know, the, the meanness and provincialism of, of Trump and his world. And I think that that kind of reached a climax when Trump took office. That dark day, of course, was January 20th, 2017. And one of the first things Trump did was ban Syrian refugees from entering the United States. A week later, Jonathan Gold's review in the L.A. Times on Saturday was about a place called the Syrian Kitchen. He said it was... Probably, I'm quoting now, as unassuming a restaurant as exists in Van Nuys, a barely renovated storefront on a strip of auto body shops with four or five tables, a soda cooler in the corner, and a takeout business that dwarfs the sleepy pace of the cafe. He did kind of a profile of the woman who runs this Syrian restaurant in Van Nuys, Waha Greer. He says she moved here from Homs, Syria, 40 years ago. He said... She opened her modest cafe in 2014, and there you sense that she has become the surrogate Syrian mother for half the San Fernando Valley. He said the food at this restaurant could sustain a civilization, and it has, close quote. That was the end of his restaurant review. He never mentions Trump. He never mentions the Syrian civil war or refugees or immigration. But by writing about a Syrian place in Van Nuys a week after Trump banned Syrian refugees from entering the United States, he didn't have to do any of those things. It's perfectly clear. He's reminding us that there are Syrians who are our neighbors and that L.A. is a better place because some Syrians came here. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, those of us who worked as journalists in L.A., as I did for, for many years, and saw part of our mission to explain uh, the broader city and perhaps by extension the broader world to our readers. We all, you know, a lot of us were endeavoring one way or another to do that. In some ways, Jonathan did it best. And he was also, as you mentioned, a fabulous writer. His most famous sentences were the ones he wrote in the L.A. Weekly in 1998. I quote, for a while in my early 20s, I had only one clearly articulated ambition, to eat at least once at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard, starting with the fried yucca dish served at a pupuseria near the downtown end and working methodically westward toward the chili fries at Tom's Number 5 near the beach. It seemed a reasonable enough alternative to graduate school, close quote. Uh, yeah, for anyone, for any young people contemplating uh, careers, well, I think the careers of lots of journalists are, are you know, have many crooked lines. Uh, I think Jonathan is an example, but, uh, you know, you can do amazing stuff uh, in, in, in certain fields that, hadn't been considered all that amazing before. And, and you know, that's really what he did with food criticism. I mean, it's only in the last couple decades that that genre has uh, really both expanded its readership and expanded its depth. And, uh, you know, Jonathan is responsible for a lot of that. And, of course, if you're writing about all the restaurants on Pico Boulevard starting downtown, the first group you're going to come to is P the Pico Union neighborhood, which is maybe the poorest neighborhood in L.A., and the one that's filled with Central American refugees at the very moment he started writing, the Salvadorians, the Nicaraguans. And, of course, that was a huge issue in American politics at that point. It was. It was. And, you know, this is, this is only slowly coming to the attention of, uh, of, 
of Angelinos. I remember in the late 80s, there was a fire in what was then uh, the tallest, and now it's the second tallest building in Los Angeles, Library Tower. And I was in L.A. watching the 11 o'clock news report as the janitorial workhorse was pouring out. And at that point, I, I realized, gee, the people who clean downtown buildings are all these immigrants from, they look like they're Mexican or Central American. I mean, you know, at that point, that part of the city was becoming visible, you know, only through the, the coverage of, of catastrophes. Jonathan began writing about it then by writing about its food, by by schlepping down Pico Boulevard in his truck and his little in his pickup. And he was uh, right right there on the, as that happened. And of course, over the years politically, that is a group which has gained, certainly in, in the Mexican immigrant community, uh, a great deal of political power. Jonathan was chronicling it bite by bite from the very outset. Bite by bite. Last word, a quote, last quote from Jonathan. I'm trying to get people to be less afraid of their neighbors. Jonathan Gold is irreplaceable for us. You can read Jonathan's reviews at latimes.com. You can read Harold Meyerson at prospect.org. Thanks, Harold. It's great having you on the show. Great being here, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.